0: doing in our hearts here, so really cool. So anyway, we're in the book of Mark, and uh, chapter 2, and I think that's really a great introduction into what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to read to you a scripture that many of you are familiar with, but I want to read it as an introduction to what we're going to talk about, and it's Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8, and it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's more familiar than the verse right before that, which says in verse 7 of Ephesians 2, that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And as we watch that video and as we know God's work in each of our lives and believers lives, it's truly amazing when we see God touch somebody's heart. It's Truly amazing to see that the miracle of God's kindness and his goodness working in a person's heart. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The title of the message is Saved by Grace Alone. So if you'll notice, we'll read through the section together in Matthew. I'm sorry, Mark. Chapter two. Verses 13. Through 17. So it says he then he went out again by the sea. And all the multitude came to him. And he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. And now it happened. As he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so here we see the calling of Matthew, the calling of Levi. His, his name, his given name was Levi. So Levi, Matthew, as we find How God called him and his response to God's call and the work that God did through him. We can only be amazed at the grace put on display by God in and through Matthew's life. And as we look at that, it's a reminder that it's it's not based on us being good. It's a reminder that sometimes people get it into their mind that these Christian people, they're, they're good people. Or those go to church, they're good people or they're moral people. And that could not be the furthest thing from the truth. We are forgiven people, not good people. And it's by the grace of God that we would have any desire to want to walk with God, to want to please God, to want to honor Him and serve Him. It's by His grace. And so I want to point out here, my first point in, in verse 13 is this, the calling of a sinner. God's calling of a sinner. Let's look at some of these details. See, when He says then, and, and now you're starting to get the flow of, of uh, this book, Mark. Mark's then, immediately, this happened, this happened, this happened. And this, this book points to Jesus being on the move. It points to his servant attitude, that he was here to do the work of his father. And he was on the move. And here he's on the move. He's on the move because he just got finished, we talked about last week, just got finished healing a paralytic man. And as he got finished healing the paralytic man, a man who was lowered into the the house that Jesus was preaching and teaching, and that was so crowded they couldn't get him in, and so they lowered him in from the top. and And Jesus said, "Your sins are forgiven you," which was interesting because that's not why they came; they came for him to walk again, and they knew Jesus could heal him physically. But Jesus went a step further, and he said, "Your sins are forgiven." And then the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they started in their hearts. They were saying, "How did you? How can he say that? Because only God can can heal sin. Only God can forgive sin." And so Jesus knew what they're reasoning in their heart. And so Jesus said, "So that you would know that I have." The power and authority to forgive sin. Stand up and walk. See, his healing of the paralytic was just simply to point out that, that he, can, he can heal physical sin, but that's just an example of his power to be able to heal what's really important, that's to forgive us of our sin. Only God can do that. He was proving he was God. And so, so after that, he's on the move again. And so it says, then he went out by the sea. So he was in the town of Capernaum, which is right by the sea, which if we go to Israel, we go here. You'll see how close it is. And so he went out by the sea. So what he's doing is, is these crowds were following him. And remember, the crowds mainly were following him because they wanted to be healed. And so... We get this uh, description from Mark that the whole town, all of Capernaum, they all went to him and he was healing all of them. And then the villages around the Sea of Galilee that they were hearing about this and word was getting out. So these, these people were following him in masses, but it was primarily just to be healed of their physical ailments and not to worship Jesus himself. And that's why Jesus' ministry was one uh, primarily of teaching, not of healing. The healing was to substantiate his teaching. And so, as he was healing people, people were coming, and then he would teach and he he would explain things. And so, as he goes out more by, by the sea, so more people could be accommodated, more people could hear. His message, and then it says all the multitude came to him and he taught them. This was his ministry. This is uh, in Mark chapter one, verse thirty eight. He said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach for this purpose. I have come forth. So his emphasis is something that we should take note of because our emphasis should not be on miracles and experiences, and emotional highs, our, our priority should be on the, on his word, on the truth of his word. And as our heart and mind is focused on the truth of his word, and he's leading us on by his truth, and we're anchored in his truth, and we're exercising faith in his truth, and then a lot of feelings come as a result of that. But we're not to base our faith on our feelings. We'll, we'll, we'll be in trouble because our feelings are really part of our flesh, not part of the spirit. And so our feelings then can, can lead us the wrong direction. And, and most likely they will. But see, when when Jesus went out, it was this truth. And it was the truth that would set people free. And he focused on teaching them what his kingdom was about. And specifically, look at uh, look with me in Mark 1 15. It gives us an idea of exactly what he was saying. This is what he was preaching. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was what he was teaching. And so as he's teaching this, he's by the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And then in verse 14, he's on the move again. And it says, And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And so as he's on the move, there's a a booth, like a toll booth, the way we would think of it, the toll road. And this toll booth was... On a main thoroughfare, Capernaum, the town of Capernaum was a major thoroughfare that would go to Damascus and also to the Mediterranean Sea. So, because of all the traffic going through there, the Romans set up a tax office. And that tax office was manned by Levi, which was a common practice of the Romans that they would man a tax office with a Jew. And the way that a Jew would get that job, this was a highly sought-after, highly coveted job. Be like trying to get a Chick-fil-A franchise. (laughs) It's almost impossible, and if you get it, you're like the lucky one. Because you're, you're guaranteed to strike it rich. Or even better if In-N-Out ever franchised to get an In-N-Out franchise. It would be like better than winning the lotto. And so the way that a tax collector would get this job, it, it would be a Jewish, a Jewish person that would bid the job. And the job would go to the highest bidder. In other words, the job would go to the... The person who said that they can get the most amount of money from the Jews. And so they would make a bid and they'd say, this is how much money I can get out of the Jews. And of course, the Roman Empire would say, OK, but that number would be very high because it would have to be high to get the job. And then on the way that they would make their money is commission. So after they really extorted the money from the Jews to pay the Romans, whatever they made after that, they would get to keep. And so tax collectors were extremely rich. And for a Jew to be extremely rich in the Roman Empire, it would be very rare because there wasn't a lot of opportunities in the Roman Empire to get rich. So, Levi got this job, which means that he was very wealthy. Which means that every tax that he took from every Jew was a tax that built up his own personal kingdom and at the same time stripped away the livelihood of those fellow Jews and countrymen and people of the same heritage. And so the tax collector would be despised by the Jews. They would be looked at as traitors. They would be looked at as evil. They would be looked at as greedy. They would be looked at as destroying a family destroying individuals' livelihood and, and well being, they would have an, an object to point to to say that this person is stripping my generations of my family of of their ability to live. And and at the same time the tax collector would keep putting the pressure on to keep getting more and more finances and the tax collector would have at his disposal the Roman Guards as force. So they're able to enforce whatever tax they wanted to tax the people and use a Roman guard to do that. So now as, as Jesus is preaching about this kingdom and is demonstrating about being a servant and preaching this gospel of another kingdom and masses are following him and. He's healing people and he's preaching goodness and love and power. But he's also preaching repentance and to turn from your sins. As he, He's moving. He comes across that tax booth. And as he comes across that tax booth, he comes across Levi, Matthew. You think about this and you think about what Levi or Matthew may be thinking. You may kind of get an idea of what it would be like of, of seeing this person that is demonstrably good and doing so much good works and you're sitting there knowing in your heart how guilty you are. No doubt a tax collector uh, would carry a deep sense of guilt. They would be always... Uh, told how much of a traitor they were, and they would be told how much they are ruining the lives of individuals. Every day they would hear these things, and he's he's sitting there, he comes in contact with or is is confronted with Jesus. And I I find it amazing that when Jesus saw him, it says that he saw Levi. Levi. And he didn't see a tax collector. And when others would pass by, what would they see? They would see a tax collector. But Jesus passed by and he saw Levi. And here we start to begin to understand the depths of God's grace, where he looks at an individual, he looks at the person. He doesn't look at what that person is doing. He looks at what that person needs. And there's not a a deed that a person can do that would cause Jesus to turn away from them and not offer them forgiveness. And this was the scene as Jesus is passing by and he sees Levi, the person, sitting there at the tax Office, and here's what Jesus said to him Follow me. And, and picture this with the masses of people all around, he zeroed in on Levi, Matthew. He zeroed in on him. And his, his message to Levi, you just can kind of get this movement from the general. To the specific. Jesus preaching these messages, throngs of people following him, and then it's like probably in in Matthew's mind, all he heard was these words that came directly to his heart. I believe at this moment, for him, everything stopped, nothing mattered. And these words that came to his heart, Jesus said, Follow me, and it says that he arose and followed him, just like that. So what was Jesus seeing? I think that should help us to understand a little bit more about what's going on, because on the surface, that would seem pretty unusual for somebody to leave a job that they, they bid and won, And we're making so much money on. And the moment Jesus said, follow me, he just left that because he couldn't go back to that job. Unlike a fisherman. Right. The fish are still there. If you leave your fisherman job and it doesn't work out, you can come back and fish some more. But see, this is impressive. That Matthew heard these words. And what he did was he followed Jesus. In other words, he left everything to follow Jesus. In other words, what Matthew heard and probably what he saw, what he saw Jesus doing and teaching must have been something in his heart that God had been preparing him for. It's, It's sort of like the work that's done in a person's heart before they actually become born again, that that person may not know or may not understand. And I know when I look back on my life and I look back on how I got saved and I look back on the things that preceded that and little events, little things somebody may have said some circumstances, and all these things, after I got saved, I looked back and I realized that God had been preparing me for this moment. And the moment that I heard the gospel, it was almost as if I was just waiting for somebody to tell me. It was almost as if I, this was the moment that God had prepared me for, and I believe this is what's happening to Matthew. Matthew. Matthew would have been carrying around huge amount a huge amount of guilt. And people would be reminding him constantly. And as he built his personal empire, he had nobody to really share it with, except for other people like him. And so his circles were not circles of... People edifying him and encouraging him. And he wasn't growing in the fruit of the spirit. His joy wasn't growing. Love wasn't growing. Peace in his heart wasn't growing. He was growing in the flesh and in the things of the world. And he would have known in his heart he's completely empty. Completely bankrupt. He would have known it's not worth it. He would have known that his... Winning of that bid, which he probably thought was the greatest thing that could ever happen to him, actually became the worst thing that actually happened to him. He would have been an empty, bitter man that is constantly being reminded of his sin. And Jesus came and he said, follow me. And so Jesus saw his heart. That's like us. Jesus sees our heart and what he sees is. Is that we have a great need. What he sees. Is that we are. Desperately empty. And so he too. Like us. uh, Or like us. Jesus calls us. And he says follow me. So as we look at. Matthew and we see. What Jesus was seeing. We see how personal. And individual. And all knowing that Jesus was towards Matthew, then we see uh, the certain response. And that response was interesting because it was to follow him. And I don't know if we often realize what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to follow him. And Jesus doesn't call us to be churchgoers. Jesus doesn't call us to just do good things. Jesus doesn't call us to fix the world. He calls us to follow him. And as Jesus makes that call, his heart was ripe and ready to receive that call. And he was willing to leave everything To follow Jesus. And so. To follow Jesus. To understand. What it means to follow him. I want to read a few verses in that regard. And especially. In a day and age where. Christianity. Is not often. Portrayed accurately. As those who are followers of Jesus. But Christianity can be put in incorrect ways to where a person thinks if they just attend a service once in a while or if they just walk down an aisle at an altar call, then then that means that you're good. But the real evidence is in are we following Jesus? Now, of course, that doesn't mean any of us follow him perfectly. But what it means is, what is really the direction of our life? Another way to put that is, what do we really want? What do we really desire if God has put in our hearts a longing for him in our new creation being, if we're truly born again, then we should have a desire for him. We should want to be with him. We should want to grow in him. We should want to serve him. We should want to know him in a deeper way. This is all evidence that something has changed in our heart. And so there's a direction, and this direction means that as we're following Jesus, that means we're going in a direction away from the world at the same time. And so in Matthew sixteen twenty four, you might want to jot these down in regards to what it really means to follow Jesus, in Matthew sixteen twenty four it says Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me so let's just stop there. Seems like an open invitation, doesn't it? And so we have to ask ourselves do I desire that? Do I desire to come after him? And if we do, it says, let him deny himself. In other words, if we de- desire to come after Jesus. Then what's going to be necessary is to deny ourselves, meaning we're not living for ourselves anymore, but we're living for Christ. And then he says, take up. His cross and follow me. And then in Matthew six verse twenty four, it says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is like money. So he he makes a clear distinction." There is a clear distinction going on here. We're either following the world or we're following Christ. In Luke fourteen twenty seven, it says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So this morning, across our country, say, How many people are sitting in church but have no intention of really following Jesus? And they don't want the pastor or the message to say anything about that. But they would prefer to continue on their worldly direction and have the pastor pat them on the back and say, that is wonderful. And that is exactly opposite of what the Bible says. I just read those scriptures for you. And so what we see here, I find it interesting that Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from London in the middle 1800s, he said, the Christian grows rich by his losses. He lives by dying and becomes full by being emptied. And here we find just an amazing statement of what happens when we follow Jesus. There may be things we forsake, but then there are things that we, are, we gain that are eternal and that are satisfying. And that do for us internally what the world can never do, and that's to be satisfied in Christ. And so our call, like Jesus' call to Matthew... Our call is to follow Him. And don't mix that up. Don't mistake something else or put something else in the way, a religious tradition or some duty or punching your time clock when you're spending your hour at church. Don't, that's, that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to follow Him. And when we follow Him, we, were, we will follow Him in the ways that he is going, that the Bible spells out. And now, let me just say a quick word about something that I've observed over the years. So, when when God calls us, get in get in your mind the, the picture of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water. That's what it's like. Leaving the familiar, the comfortable things we may find security in. And now we're walking where all we have to hold us up is faith. And in order for us to keep walking by faith, we have to have our eyes on Jesus the whole way. And when God calls us out, when he calls us to follow him, he'll keep calling us deeper and deeper So that we get closer and closer to Him. And and what we find is that He wants to take us into the promised land. And as we go there, there's nothing else to hold us up except for our faith in Him. But here's what I've noticed over the years. I've noticed that many well-meaning Christians follow Jesus to a certain point and then they plateau. And some believers live their whole life at that plateau, meaning they don't go any further. They stay right where they are. And what usually happens is that that believer starts following Jesus and then they encounter things that the Lord wants to demolish in their life, and it's the things that they're holding on to that are not of God. See, when we're being sanctified, which God is going to do to every believer, what he's doing is separating us from the world and from ourself. And there seems to be this, this device of Satan that gets even the most on-fire, zealous Christian all fired up and moving forward. And then they get to a place where God wants to break through a barrier and take them into a whole other level of intimacy and depth with him. And yet, many of those people do not go through that. And they find a comfort in the plateau. They find a place where they can just sort of meander there and live their life out there, not go any further because going further is going to require them to deny something of themselves or to break down some idol or something they're clinging on to make them feel comfortable and safe. And God says, I love you so much. I'm taking you all the way in and I'm destroying all those idols and all those false things in your life. And so we have to let them do all of that and have no plateaus and have no qualifications. Or conditions. And the people that I've seen and observed in life. That are willing to submit themselves to God. No matter what may happen. And they keep plunging forward by faith. Those are the people that experience the nearness of God. And the satisfaction of God. That is very hard to explain. These are the people that are close to God. So the the message here. If we're going to follow Jesus, don't have anything you, you, that will stop you. And you may have noticed, maybe you're in a place now where where it's like, I'm not not going forward like I used to. I used to be all fired up. I used to be moving forward. And something caused you to stop and linger and stay. I want to encourage you to get back up and follow him and let God take you on into the promised land no matter how hard it is and how difficult it is, because he wants us to live by faith and not by sight. So, point number two. You may think, man, that's so so amazing what happened to Matthew here. But see, being saved by grace alone is an insult to our pride. Our flesh hates it. Our flesh Wants to do something to be saved. Our flesh hates when we're told that we're not good. Our flesh rebels against that, reacts against it. And this is exactly what we see in our text in verse 15. So so now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. So that escalated quickly, didn't it? So he says, follow me. Next thing you know, they're like buddies. Next thing you know, Matthew, I believe, can't believe that he's accepted. And so you say, like, you want to come over for dinner? I haven't had a dinner with a decent person in a long time. You want to come over for dinner in my big, giant house? And so it says, many tax collectors... And sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples. So what happened? So Matthew told all his buddies. Matthew went out and and he said, hey, guys, Jesus will accept you too. And they're like, no. Yeah, I'm telling you. Just come to my house and you'll see. Jesus loves us. He's the Messiah. He's so good. Guys, come on over. And they're all there. It reminds me of our baptism. A bunch of sinners and tax collectors sitting together saying, isn't Jesus good? Isn't this amazing? And it says that there were many there. And it says that they followed him. So the work of Jesus calling Matthew out is now affecting Those around Matthew and what is affecting them is he's telling them that Jesus will save them, too. And no matter what they've done or how bad they've been, the message is resonating and they're all there. They have a church now. This is like a church, a bunch of sinners saved and touched by God, gathering together and enjoying fellowship with Jesus. Imagine the tax booths that are taking a hit. All the tax collectors and sinners, they're coming to Jesus' his house and they're following him. And the tax business is taking a temporary hit. I'm sure there'll be many people to fill those gaps. But when God's really, really working, there should be tangible effects in our homes and in our communities. When there's something really happening, and God is really moving in a community with, with people that have changed their life. Maybe we'll, we'll see bars shut down, and strip clubs shut down, and wouldn't it be great if the pornography business shut down? But see, when people begin to follow Jesus, it changes the society and that's the problem when we think that we can legislate morality. We can't. It's, the gospel's the most powerful message to change a family, a community, or a city. So in verse 16, now, when the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners... They said to Jesus' disciples, wow, that's amazing. Isn't that beautiful? Look how you changed their lives. Isn't God good? No, they didn't say that. Isn't this crazy? God has done a miracle here. God has done a work here. And then there are people looking at that. And saying, why is he eating with those people? Why is he doing that? Because in their mind, those people were dirty. But what they didn't understand, they're in the same boat as them. They were sinners just like them. But their self-righteousness said, we're better than them. Their bad, we're good. And you know what's happening? They are blinded by their pride to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. They don't even see and recognize the Messiah, even though they're well-studied and well-trained more than anybody. These These are the scribes and the Pharisees. They are experts in the law, but it was their pride that blinded them to their need. And they said, how is it that he eats And drinks with tax collectors and sinners. We can't believe that. And so here we see what self-righteousness looks like. Here we see the danger of self-righteousness. Here we see how self-righteousness is a bigger disease than our own sin. Because it blinds us from our need to be saved. And then, finally, in verse 17. So when Jesus calls the sinner, there's going to be an objection of the self-righteous. So this all boils down to what truly is the basis of forgiveness. So in verse 17, when Jesus heard it. So this is interesting because... Before, they're reasoning in their hearts about what Jesus was doing wrong. And Jesus perceived it because he's all-knowing. And now they're like talking to the disciples about it, trying to like remove Jesus from understanding or hearing what they're saying. So they're trying to do all this stuff secretly. So, but Jesus heard it. And here's what Jesus said. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick So now we have to ask our question ourselves a question. How do we view ourselves? Do we see ourselves and view ourselves as well or do we see ourselves as sick? Do we see ourselves as well? Or do we see ourselves as sick? Because notice what he says. I did not come to call the righteous. So get this. If one thinks they are are righteous. If one thinks they're righteous. Let me put it another way. If one thinks that they're a good person. If one thinks they can do good works. That person is not called. If you think you don't need Jesus the way the Bible says we need him, if you think Jesus is an addition to your somewhat goodness or an add in in because you're kind of a good person and you do some good things for people, when in reality, Jesus says we're sick and in trouble. But if we view ourselves as righteous, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. You're not called. You're not called to what? You're not called to be saved. That's crazy, isn't it? that, That really debunks anybody who thinks they can come to God on their own merit. I didn't come to call the righteous. But he says instead... I've come to call sinners to what? To repentance. What is the basis of our forgiveness? What is the basis of our receiving of salvation? The basis is that we recognize that we are sick sinners. And we recognize that Jesus will save us. In order for him to save us, we must turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. It's called repentance. Martin Lloyd Jones, the minister of Westminster Chapel in London in the mid 18 or I'm sorry mid 1900s said this. The thing that really worries man when he encounters God is not that there is evil in the world, but that there is evil in his heart. And coming to the place of recognition of the own wickedness and evil in our heart to recognize that we are sick spiritually and there's nothing we can do to cure ourselves will cause us to fall on our face before a loving, merciful God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to that person, Jesus saves them. He cleanses them. He forgives them. He gives them a new spirit. And he makes them uh, spiritually fruitful. And you know what? Matthew was never the same. Matthew truly meant it when he left that booth. That was the last time he ever went. And you know what happened in his life? He wrote one gospel. You know what happened in Matthew's life? He recorded two miracles that were not recorded in any other of the Gospels. You know what happened in Matthew's life? He recorded ten parables that were not recorded in the other gospels. He recorded nine discourses that weren't recorded in the other gospels. He recorded six incidences in the other that the other gospels did not disclose. He gave us the information about the wise men. He gave us the information about the coin being found in the fish's mouth. He gave us information, unique information about what happened at the tomb. And he is the one who wrote, the only one who wrote in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Matthew wrote that. The only one that wrote that. There's a reason he wrote that. He was heavy laden. He was burdened. And he came to Jesus and he found rest. And so. The freeing. Energizing. Effects. Of being saved. By grace alone. Through faith alone. Causes. A person to say, amazing grace. God is amazing. And it causes that person to walk in awe and amazement of God. Saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I pray a blessing on them. And I pray that their understanding of our salvation would cause, like Matthew, a deep desire to want to share that with others that are hurting, others that are in need, others that are sick spiritually, Lord. I pray that your grace would truly transform our life continually, that we would not only be saved by grace, but that we would walk in your grace. And I pray, Lord, that uh, your Your love would be manifest in and through us. Your goodness would be constantly on our countenance. And I pray finally, Lord, for anybody here or anybody listening that has never come to faith in you. I pray as you're ministering now, as you're by your spirit, you're calling them to receive your mercy and your forgiveness. Like Matthew, I pray that they would come. That they would receive you as their Lord and Savior now. That you would wash their sins. That you would heal them. And that they would be born again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You may stand. And we are going to have Robin Val up front. If anybody would like prayer about anything this morning as we sing this last song, just come on up. God bless you guys. And let's just sing to our hearts content and tell the Lord what we think about Him. God bless you guys.